The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you remain standing, uh, the reading of God's Word this morning comes from Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and for our sermon text, we'll be considering uh, the first 13 chapters, or rather, the first 13 verses. You're glad to know that. Uh, of the chapter. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen. To him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Well, let's pray together once again. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come into your presence this morning to request of you, O Lord, humbly and yet boldly, that as we come to your Word once again, that you would show us your Son. Show to us, O Lord, we pray, in greater measure perhaps than we've ever seen, His glory, but also, O Father, show us His grace. We pray this in His matchless name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we have been making our way through the book of Matthew up to this point, uh, we find ourselves in one of the most important sections of the book. It's really a high point of the book of Matthew. And, and as we've seen ourselves there back in chapter 16, and, and before that even, we've seen Jesus teaching his disciples more and more about his identity, explaining to them who he is. And of course, the high point of that teaching is when we find that great confession in chapter 16 on the part of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ the Son of the living God. 
And as we saw that great confession made by Peter, of course we remember that it didn't take long for Peter to make another statement, one that was much less blessed. He said that far be it from Jesus that he would die. And we find that in, in the, the end of the chapter 16. But, but really what we want to see here is this, that Jesus has been stressing his identity. He's been showing forth that he is the Messiah. And the, the, the disciples have come to the point where they understand that. They understand who Jesus is. They understand that he is the Christ. They understand that he is the son of the living God. And yet they have a problem. And their problem is, is that their understanding of the Messiah is incompatible with what Jesus is telling them about the future of His earthly ministry. You see, they do not understand how it is the case that these two things can be true. On the one hand, that Jesus can be the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the one who would reign over all of God's people forever. The one who was referred to back in Psalm 2, which we just sung of. The one who would sit on the throne of David and who would conquer the nations. The Lord would give him all the peoples of the earth as an inheritance. They don't understand how that can be true. And simultaneously, it can be true that Jesus is going to suffer. But not only he's going to suffer, he's going to die. Everybody knows that the Messiah doesn't die, right? And Peter, Peter raises this objection. And we see there that in the end of chapter 16, Jesus seeks to radically reorient his disciples. He seeks to correct them. He seeks to correct their misunderstandings of who he was and who the Messiah would be. You see, he's teaching them simply this, that they have misunderstood what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Because in their minds... What they have known about the Messiah from the Old Covenant in particular related to His glory is incompatible with the humiliation that Jesus is predicting. They don't understand how these two things can be held together. On the one hand, glory which no man has ever known, and on the other, a miserable death on a cross at the hands of sinful men. And as Jesus seeks to correct this notion, He has reoriented His disciples to the reality that He must suffer, and indeed that they must suffer as well. And He has been, if you will, feeding them some some rather bitter teachings. He has been teaching them that it is going to be a difficult road which lay before Him in this world. Indeed, a road that ends in misery, and not a road that ends in majesty. And that for them, it's going to be difficult as well. Because as they seek to take up their cross and follow the Lord, they will find the same response. And so, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, many have argued that the disciples perhaps are still confused. And I I think that that's true. They're still trying to work these two things out in their head. And perhaps they're even discouraged because what Jesus has just told them is difficult to swallow. How can you be the glorious Messiah come from God and also one who would suffer at the hands of sinners? But here, in the midst of this difficult, bitter teaching that Jesus has just been giving to them, His entire ministry 
changing to focus upon his future suffering and death, here, in the midst of this, Jesus does something that gives them a glimmer of hope, that gives them a glimpse of the future. You see, he takes them, as it were, onto the mountain of transfiguration and pulls back the veil and lets them behold his glory. And what he's intending to do here, I think, is quite simply this. He's intending to give the, the disciples that glimpse of glory, that complete understanding of who Jesus is, so that they would be encouraged for what lays ahead. He's seeking to encourage them. He's seeking to instruct them so that they will come to a better understanding of Him, yes, but also so that they will remain steadfast as they seek to follow Him through the challenging days which lay ahead. And He does this in three ways. And we're going to see that in the text. The text has really three movements. He does this first by, in verses 1-4, through revealing unto them His glorious presence. He, he does it again in verses 9 through, uh, or rather in verses 5 through 8, uh, by uh, presenting for them there his glory and, and then them seeing the Father make this glorious proclamation about him that he is the one who has all authority. He is indeed the Son of Man, the Son of God. And then last of all, he does it by predicting for them, even in light of the glory which they've just beheld and the authority which they've just seen proclaimed, his own future suffering. And he does this then for the sake of encouraging them, and indeed this morning for the sake of encouraging us, for helping us to understand these two seemingly incompatible realities of the Lord Jesus Christ, the paradox of Jesus, that he is the Son of God but he is also the suffering servant. And that's what we want to see this morning. We want to see Christ in his glory, but wonderfully, we want to see that Christ did not cling to his glory, but he humbled himself even to the point of death for sinners like us. And we want to draw encouragement from that truth. Well, look with me then as we begin to consider first Jesus' glory revealed in the transfiguration at verse 1. The text begins here by giving us, if you will, the who, what, when, and where of the transfiguration. We see first the when of the transfiguration. It tells us after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, So then we have the who of the transfiguration. We see Jesus is there. We see he's brought with him Peter, James, and John. And of course, these three are really the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. You'll remember that from throughout the book. And and in the future, uh, we continue to see this manifest. Peter, of course, has become that chief spokesman for the disciples. He's the one who makes the great confession back in chapter 16. He's also the one who sticks his foot in his mouth in chapter 16. And we'll see that he has a propensity for that in some ways. But of course, John is the disciple whom Jesus loves. We learned that from his gospel and from other places. And his brother James, who would also be an instrumental leader in the early church. So he takes these three men with him and he leaves, interestingly enough, the rest of the disciples. And he goes to a private place with these three inner circle disciples, which is interesting in and of itself. 
He takes with him the disciples. We see the when, we see the who, and then we see the where. You note that he takes them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, many have asked the question, why does he take them onto a mountain? And there are several reasons why that might be the case. Probably the best reason is, first of all, that it's a place by themselves. What Jesus is about to show these chief disciples is not something that he wants anybody else to see. Apparently, something that he doesn't even want the rest of the disciples to see. He wants them indeed to keep it secret and thus he takes them to the top of this mountain where they're very unlikely to encounter any other people. He takes them to a mountain. So we have the when, the who, the what, and the where. And now we come to the transfiguration itself. What happens when they get on top of the mountain? Verse 2 tells us, And he was transfigured before them. It goes on to explain what this means. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is a remarkable event. Obviously, this doesn't happen every day. And it must have been amazing for the disciples to witness. If you think about this, by this point in their ministry, they have been with Jesus for quite a while. They have been walking with him. They have been sitting at his feet while he's been teaching. They've seen him do a lot of amazing things. They've seen him calm storms. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him do all sorts of things which would have been very out of the ordinary for a normal human being to do. But here, perhaps in a more remarkable way than anywhere else in the Gospels, Jesus, as it were, he he pulls back the veil and lets his disciples glimpse His glory. And it's interesting how it manifests here. It manifests in the form of light. His face shines like the sun. His clothing becomes incredibly white. One of the other gospel writers says that it's more white than any launderer could have gotten any kind of clothing. It's a supernatural whiteness that they're looking upon. He is quite literally radiating. He's glowing. Glory is exuding from him. And if that isn't remarkable enough, look at what else happens. As they are there looking at him in all his glory, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. You can imagine what they must have been thinking. They must have been incredibly confused. And they must have been incredibly amazed as well as they behold Jesus shining in all the radiance of his glory. And then they see these two men, these two figures from the Old Testament appear. And you know that these are not just any men from the Old Testament. It would have been remarkable if anyone from the Old Testament appeared here on top of the mountain. But, but it's not just anybody, is it? It's two of the chief prophets of Israel. You see that. You have on the one hand Moses himself, the one whom the Lord used to deliver the nation out of the hands of the Egyptians and to create the nation, the one who became the mediator of the covenant on Mount Sinai there. He is really the chief prophet of the old covenant. Everyone is compared with Moses. Moses is the servant of the Lord and everybody else is patterned after him. And second only to Moses in the old covenant 
was Elijah. He didn't create the nation, or he wasn't used in the creation of the nation, but he was used at an essential time to call the nation back from its rebellion and its apostasy and to restore some semblance of godliness to the nation of Israel. And thus these two chief figures of the Old Covenant, if you will, the law and the prophets appear with Jesus talking. And so we have this incredible event taking place before their eyes. What must they have thought? We're going to see that Jesus in all of his glory has really overtaken these men. They don't quite know how to respond, do they? And we're going to see in just a few moments that that leads Peter to do something somewhat foolish. But before we go there, I want you to think for just a moment about some of the parallels that we see here from some things we've already heard back in the book of Exodus. Now, almost every commentator you look at on this passage will make a note that there are several striking similarities in this passage And in passages like Exodus chapter 24, which we just heard not that long ago in our evening service. If you remember, in Exodus chapter 24, Moses is is brought up onto the mountain. It's the same kind of a place, isn't it? And, And the Lord has descended onto the mountain there, and he calls Moses up. And Moses actually, he brings with him, if you remember at the end of the chapter, three men. He brings with him Nadab, Abihu, and Aaron. And remarkably, it's there that the Lord speaks to Moses after six days, inviting him into his presence so that he might commune and fellowship with Moses. And it's not in Exodus chapter 24, but if you cast your mind forward to Exodus chapter 34, interestingly enough, you'll remember that when Moses comes out of the cloud, out of the Shekinah glory of God, what has happened to him? Well, when he comes into the midst of the people, they're all scared of him. Why? Because he's glowing. He's glowing. His face was shining, the text of Exodus chapter 34 tells us. You can see the parallels that are being made here. It's it's rather remarkable, actually, when you begin to put it all together. But one of the things that's interesting about the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament is that oftentimes it's, it's not what's the same that's important, right? It's what's different. You see, this passage is not calling us to see Jesus only as some new Moses figure. Because if you remember, why is it that Moses shined with the glory of God whenever he came out of the cloud? Well, it wasn't because of any inherent glory that Moses had, was it? It was because he had been in the midst of Yahweh. It was because, as it were, he caught the holiness of God. But you notice here that Jesus doesn't catch his glory from anybody. You see that? You know, it's not because of exposure to anyone else that Jesus here is transfigured. It's not being in the presence of the Lord in some visible way that makes Jesus radiate this glory. It's Jesus Himself. Jesus doesn't catch His glory from anybody. He has His own glory. That's different, isn't it? That's a major difference. 
And the disciples, I believe, are meant to take something from this, something which we're going to see in just a few moments. They don't seem to quite have understood. But what they're supposed to see here is not only that Jesus is like Moses, but that Jesus is superior to Moses. Not only that he's superior to Moses, but that he's Moses' God. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the veil of Christ's humiliation, yes, and his humanity even pulled back for just a moment, and the glory of his divinity radiating forth. Light, of course, is a constant reference to God in the Scriptures. If you remember that, God is light. Here we see Jesus radiating His divine glory. He's radiating His divine glory. But we see that Peter doesn't seem quite to understand what's going on, does he? Notice what he says in in verse 4. And this is a difficult verse, I think, for us especially to understand. Peter, Peter says, to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Never a good way to start. It's good that we are here. And then he goes on to make a suggestion. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, if you're like me, when you read that text, you come away thinking, what in the world is Peter talking about? Right? I mean, maybe this is how we would respond if Jesus was standing before us in all of his glory. We would be like, hey, I don't know what to do. Let's go camping, right? (laughs) But I think we can read this text a little bit more graciously to our brother here. You see, Peter here is trying to sort out what he's seeing before him. And we're going to learn at the latter part of our chapter here, for instance, that a lot of the things that are taking place seem to be indicative, perhaps, of of the last day. Perhaps Peter actually believes that the kingdom has come in all its power and its glory as Jesus had just referred to earlier in chapter 16. I mean, if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? you got two guys who are dead, well, one that was taken to heaven in a special way, and one that had died, standing before you. You have here Jesus transfigured and showing forth all of his glory. And perhaps Peter has come to the place where he thinks, well, this is it, the kingdom has come. And he wants to set up camp and dwell, as it were, in the midst of this glorious event. He wants to meditate upon it, and he wants to enjoy it, and he wants to stay there. Perhaps that's the case. Perhaps he has in mind the festival of booths, which was a Jewish festival, which had taken to itself certain um, end times implications in Jewish theology at this period. But whatever the case is, we see that Peter comes up with this idea and that it's not a good idea. And we see that from verse 5. Because in verse 5, he is, if you will, gently rebuked. He's rebuked. Remarkably, he's not rebuked by Jesus. He's rebuked by God the Father. Notice what happens here. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Of course, the implication of this I don't think is difficult for us to get. Peter, it's time to stop talking, and it's time to start listening. But another thing that rises, I think, to the center of this rebuke is is this, that Peter has made a big mistake here, in that he has 
in some ways equivocated between Jesus and Elijah and Moses. You note that. He said, well, I'll make three tents here. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. And interestingly enough, it seems that God the Father has appeared here in this cloud, again reminiscent of Exodus chapter 24, when God comes in glory in a cloud. And He comes to rebuke Him because He's not yet got it. He doesn't quite understand at this point that Moses and Elijah, yeah, these are great men of the Old Covenant, but they are servants in the house of God. And the one who stands before you transfigured right now, He is the Son who rules over that house. And while you may think for a moment, wouldn't it be great to stay here with these two great figures from the Old Testament and and let them have conversations with Jesus, what the Father is saying is, is that you don't need that. What you need to do is you need to recognize the authority of Jesus. You need to recognize that the one who stands before you is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is the chief instrument of God's revelation. And He is the one to whom all authority has been given. Listen to Him. That's the point. Even faced with such glorious revelations as this, even in the face of these two men who no doubt understood the Lord and understood His Word to incredible depths, still the disciples are told, you must heed Jesus. You must heed Jesus. And of course, what's the disciples' response here? It's, I would imagine, the response that we would have as well. That they don't argue. They don't talk back at this point. When they heard it, they fell on their faces and were terrified. We learn in verse 6. They're in the dirt. Which is, by the way, the universal response of human beings when they encounter, or when they encounter rather, the glory of God. Whenever God shows up to sinful men, this is the response. They're in the dirt. The result of this proclamation is fear. It's fear. But look at what Jesus does. But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's an amazing statement in the text there, isn't it? They had just been beholding the glory of God surrounding them, enclosing them in this cloud. They they had just witnessed the Savior as He was transformed and radiating His glory. They had just seen these two pillars of the old covenant revelation standing before them, talking with them. All of these things are, are going on before their eyes. It's like the veil had been rent and they were able to see into the heavenly places. And the response to that, of course, rightly so, on the part of sinful men like these, is terror. But now Jesus, in His mercy and in His grace, has removed the terror. He's removed the fear. He's put back the veil. 
And when they open their eyes, all they see is Jesus. Here again, friends, I think we hear an echo of the mediatorial work of Moses on the mountain, don't we? We can think about that for a moment. Think, for instance, of what happened when Yahweh spoke with the people. Remember what happened in Exodus chapter 20, when the Lord was speaking. What did the people say? Well, they they couldn't bear it, could they? They wanted Moses to go and be instructed by God and then bring it down to them because when they were faced with the glory of God in that directive of fashion, they could not bear it. And the disciples couldn't either. But thanks be to God, we have Jesus. Jesus is there mediating the glory of God in human form. He's there presenting, as it were, that contact point, that way for men to interact with the Father. He's there in all of His grace, and not just His glory. And that, friends, is good news. It's good news for the disciples. It's good news for us. Because we would respond the same way that they did if we were confronted with this kind of glory. But after seeing the revelation of Jesus' glory in the transfiguration, and after seeing this marvelous event of God coming down in this glorious cloud and speaking to Him directly about the authority of Jesus, about His messianic identity, we now see that after Jesus has raised them up, as it were, from their, their pit of fear... They begin to come down the mountain in verse 9. I think it's interesting here that we find not only a descent, literally, as they head down the mountain, but we also see a descent figuratively as we transition at this point from seeing about the glory of Christ, seeing about the authority of Christ, and now the focus turns on what? It turns to the suffering of Christ. Look at what happens here. As they, they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And apparently at this point the disciples have some burning questions in the back of their mind, at least one here. And the disciples asked Him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now think about what's happened here. Jesus is instructing them, look, don't tell anybody about what you have seen until I am raised from the dead. Notice here again, there's a reference to his death and his resurrection. We've seen that in the last chapter. We'll see it here and we'll see it a few more times before it actually takes place. He is preparing them for what is to come. But you notice that in that context, they show that they are now absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, don't they? Because they turn to discuss this question of were the scribes right about the coming of Elijah, which was meant to be the precursor to the coming of the Messiah. They're convinced, and you would imagine they would be, after seeing what they've just seen. He is the Messiah. But that doesn't answer all the questions. Why is it then that the scribes teach this, and we could go a step further even than they did, why is it that the Old Testament teaches that Elijah will come before the Messiah? And so Jesus begins to address this question, doesn't he? He says this, 
He says, uh, Elijah does come, in verse 11, and he will restore all things. But then verse 12, very importantly, not only will Elijah come, but Elijah has come. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Now you note here again that Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding they have about the old covenant and what it teaches concerning the Messiah. You see, they believed, along with the scribes and the Pharisees and everyone else at this period, that when Elijah came, he would restore all things in the sense that Elijah would come and he would bring about the preparation for the Messiah and for his glorious reign. And there is a sense in which that is absolutely true. But there is another sense in which Elijah did not come, as we see here, to prepare the way for the Messiah's glorious reign over the nation of Israel and the humbling of the Romans and the subjugation of all the nations to the military might of Israel, the way they imagined. But Elijah came to prepare the way for the Messiah by, putting, by being put to death at the hands of sinners. You see what's happening here? Elijah came to prepare the way, yes. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah by suffering the same fate, really, that the Messiah suffered. And this is important because he points out here that the people of Israel have not recognized Elijah. Of course, by the end of the passage, we see there that the disciples later understand that it is John the Baptist that he's talking about. We learn in Luke chapter 1 would come and he would minister in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. They didn't recognize Elijah. And it's important that they didn't recognize Elijah. Because it sets the stage for them not to recognize Jesus. They didn't recognize Elijah, and they're not going to recognize the Messiah himself. You see, Jesus here is preparing them again for his suffering. He's preparing them. He's giving them a grid through which to understand the events that they are about to witness. In the same way that the Israelites were unable to discern who Elijah was in the form of John the Baptist, so they are unable to discern that the one who they will eventually crucify is the Lord of glory himself. He's being prepared, and he's preparing them. He's preparing them for his suffering by predicting it. And it is amazing at this point to look at the structure of this passage from kind of a 30,000 foot view. John 17 begins in verses 1 through 4 by setting forth to us all the glory of Christ. By showing forth to us in that way that really nowhere else in the Gospels and in the ministry of Jesus we see His glory, His divinity, His radiance, His holiness, His majesty. It continues by showing forth His authority by the very Word of God from heaven, asserting it. And then it ends amazingly, not on the mountain with the glory of Christ, but coming down the mountain with the suffering and the death of Christ. 
This is an amazing thing that we're witnessing. We're seeing here that, that Jesus, the one who is glorious, the one who is most glorious, the one who doesn't borrow his glory from anybody else, but in and of himself has this glory of divinity, this one, the one who has all authority, all power, who is the Lord of Lord and the Kings of Kings, this is the one who now comes down the mountain from all of the heights of His majesty and His glory to suffer a miserable fate for the sake of sinners like me and you. This is an amazing thing that we're witnessing. We've seen the glory, and now we see the grace. We see the grace of the Savior. That He didn't cling to His glory, but that He humbled Himself became a servant, became obedient, and was willing to suffer and die for us. The contrast here is amazing. And we learn a lot here about the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn about His humiliation. We learn about the depths of His humiliation. We get a little taste of what His exaltation will be like as well. But we also see that pattern which Jesus has spoken of back in verses 24 through 28 of chapter 16 here, don't we? We see that the path of Jesus is indeed to the crown of glory, but it's through the cross. Once again, that fact is reiterated to us. And it again reminds us, friends, that as we live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by the suffering, glorious Lord of all. We imitate Him. And our lives will bear the same pattern as well. You see, the Christian life, like the life of Christ, is a life that does not seek to glorify itself while it's here on this earth. It is a life of humiliation. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of humility. Not many of us will have earthly glory. Many of us will suffer terribly on this earth. And yet the good news is, is that insofar as we do that for the sake of Christ, friends, we are like the Savior. Because our life's pattern after His life is one that is lived in the present suffering, but always conscious of the future glory. The Christian is to have the mind of Christ in this way. That when we live in this world, a life of humility, a life of suffering, when we seek to count others more significant than ourselves, we do so knowing that the day is coming where the Lord will exalt the humble. Where all of the sufferings of this world will not even be counted worthy to be remembered in the face of the glorious weights of eternity. But friends, this is the pattern of Christ's life. It's the pattern of our life too. It's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to cultivate Christ-like humility, a Christ-like willingness to suffer for our brothers and sisters even in a passage like this when we see the depth 
of his love for his people. Friends, we're called here, I think, to imitate Christ. To imitate his suffering while simultaneously looking forward to the glory that awaits us as it awaited him. But of course, we're meant to draw, as I mentioned at the beginning of the passage, instruction from this passage, yes. But we're also meant to draw encouragement from it as well. This passage prepared the disciples to witness what would take place uh, during the rest of the ministry of Christ's life. And of course, we are to keep this passage in mind as we read the rest of Matthew as well. And as we see the Lord of glory himself humiliated to the point of death on a cross. And yet, friends, I think we're also to draw encouragement from this today. Even as we look around at the world and we consider all the horrors that we see around us, we consider all of the suffering, all of the misery, we we are called to remember that the Lord of glory has indeed suffered for sinners. And that should inform everything that we experience. And it should inform the way we look at the world, the way we look at the state of the church, the way we look at every single fact of our reality should be seen in the light of what we learn here. We should be encouraged then by the revelation of Christ's glory. We should be encouraged as well by the proclamation of His authority. And I think most of all, we should be encouraged by the prediction and by the willingness of him to suffer for sinners such as us. Let us then leave this place encouraged in light of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in light of his glory, and in light of his grace this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, O Lord, that we know that you have so loved us that you sent your own Son into this world. You loved us so much that you sent your eternally begotten Son, the one whom you loved from all eternity, the one whom you had glorified from all eternity to come into this world of wickedness and sinfulness and to become like us, to bear our sins and to give us His righteousness. It is an incredible thought, O Lord, that we have when we consider how the Lord of glory was crucified by men. We pray this day, Father, that You would give us, O Lord, in all that we do, remembrance of His grace, and that You would help us, O Lord, to cultivate a desire to walk in light of that grace and to walk in anticipation of our own opportunity to glimpse His glory in heaven. We ask it, O Father, so that we might be more faithful servants in Your church, and that we, Lord, might do Your will well on this earth. We pray in His matchless name. Amen.